0: Welcome to The Ocean, episode 14. I'm Adam Mosley. It's election day here in the U.S., a day which, regardless of the outcome, will certainly be in elections to be remembered. Today, we're taking a look at the stereotype-defying, groundbreaking women of U.S. presidential politics. So stick around. The Ocean Podcast. Life and faith that's welcoming, affirming, and encouraging to others and yourself. Here's our host. We all remember November 8th, 2016. I was living on the other side of the planet, and I remember November 8th, 2016, what was presumed to be a historic election where the U.S. would finally join the list of over 90 countries who have had a female head of state or head of government, including most of Asia, most of Europe, most of South America... Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and several African nations. And the general consensus was that if Hillary Clinton couldn't beat Donald Trump, a historically bad candidate, she couldn't beat anybody, at least as far as the Electoral College is concerned, which in U.S. presidential politics is ultimately what matters. Eight years of right wing white resentment of our first black president, Barack Obama, coupled with 20 plus years of conservative media villainizing the Clintons and the long held white Republican dream of having a businessman in the White House, came together in the states that have outsized influence on our elections, and the rest is history. The over 65.8 million people who voted for Clinton and all of those who didn't vote because they were sure she was going to win, woke up on November 9th to the fact that a well-placed minority, just 46% of voters, got their way. Since that day, many have had this day, November 3rd, 2020, circled on their calendars. And according to current polls, if the majority of people, 51%, get their way, Donald Trump will be a one-term president. And in the process of ridding our nation of this unqualified, lazy, immature, narcissistic reality TV host, if 51% of the people get their way, we will also see another set of historic firsts. Kamala Harris stands to become the first black vice president, the first Indian American and Asian American vice president, and the first female vice president in the over 230 year history of the United States of America. It's not because no one has tried. Throughout history, 98 other women have been vice presidential candidates. Hillary Clinton was actually the 92nd woman to run for president. Of course, she was the first major party presidential nominee, and no woman has come close to what she did in earning 65.8 million votes. You may have heard of Jill Stein, the two-time Green Party candidate. Stein has received the second and third most votes for president of any woman at one and a half million in 2016 and 468,000 in 2012. Someone that most people have not heard of is the woman who lands at number four on that list. A black two-time presidential candidate who ran on a platform of racial justice, gay rights, and a reform agenda that sought to rid the U.S. of a two-party political system. Her name is Lenora Fulani and now 70-year-old psychologist and activist from Chester, Pennsylvania, who has spent much of her life developing programs for minority youth in New York City. Fulani has always been a divisive figure and someone who was ever willing to speak her mind. At various times, she has aligned with Reverend Al Sharpton and Louis Farrakhan, Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan, and most recently Michael Bloomberg in his New York mayoral campaigns of the early 2000s. But when she first ran for president in 1988, Lenora Fulani was a 38 year old black woman living and working in New York and running in a presidential race against George H.W. Bush, the vice president at the time in an extremely popular Reagan administration. Nobody was likely to beat Bush, especially a young black woman. But Fulani wasn't really trying to win, she was trying to make a point. As she campaigned against two old white guys, both seasoned politicians, Fulani's campaign was about raising the issues important to her and her supporters. She used her voice to advocate for a turn from the domination of two political parties, offering a stark contrast to Bush and his Democratic opponent, Michael Dukakis. She was stoking a conversation about racial justice and gay rights when the other candidates weren't talking about it. She was, some would say, raising a stink. Raising a stink is what minor party politics is about. And Fulani raised a stink that year by becoming the first black, first independent, and first female presidential candidate to make the ballot in all 50 states. She would not be ignored. During her second run for president in 1992, as the U.S. was trying to recover from a recession, Fulani took her campaign to New Hampshire, a key political state and a very white one. She went door to door in the New Hampshire cold and spoke with people about her campaign. And here's how she described it during a campaign speech in New York City. She said she told those white middle class and working class people, quote, about my work in the Harlem community and inner cities around this country with African-American and Latino folks, about the struggles in terms of the child welfare agencies with kids being taken illegally from black and Latino women, primarily for the crime of being poor. I told them about the numbers of young people and their families that I represented who had died as a result of cops killing them and nobody being indicted, or, or in the case of Mary Mitchell, the cop getting indicted but not convicted in sight of overwhelming evidence. I said to them that the rumor is that white people in New Hampshire don't really give a damn about the fact that black youth are being murdered in Harlem and Bed Stewie. It seems something's haven't really changed much since 1992. Still, some things have changed. Many voters, especially young and minority voters, were energized by Barack Obama's candidacy in 2008, and they came out in large numbers for him, and they won twice. Something I wasn't sure I would see in my lifetime, having a black president, was accomplished In 2008, in large part due to new voters who decided to put American democracy to the test. Would their votes really matter? They discovered that, yes, in fact, they did. That if you can get out the vote, a black man named Barack Hussein Obama can be president of the United States of America. Rest assured that today, many of those voters as well as a new generation who came of age in the Obama era, believe once again that their vote matters. That's why young people are turning out in record numbers to vote and volunteer in 2020. Only this time, it's not that they're super excited about the presidential candidate. They're motivated instead by the state of our nation after four years of Donald Trump. They don't see Joe Biden as their savior. They see Joe as someone who will take Washington, D.C. back to the status quo. And they aren't wrong. But in the face of authoritarian fascism and racism, status quo starts to look pretty attractive. Having a halfway decent human being in the White House is a pretty low bar, but it's one that the current occupant has failed to get over. The call from activists and many voters is, Vote Biden-Harris! then hold their feet to the fire. The work isn't over if Joe Biden gets elected. It's only just begun. Electing another old white man as president does very little to advance the causes progressives care about, but it gives a better base starting point than a narcissistic authoritarian grift bag. And to be honest, most of the enthusiasm around the Biden-Harris campaign, whatever there is, is actually around the second name on that ticket. Kamala Harris doesn't simply represent a historic choice for VP, she represents a refreshing choice. I want to talk about that in a minute, but first, let me remind you one more time about Vote Common Good. Doug Patchett and his team founded Vote Common Good in 2018 with a mission to inspire, energize, and mobilize people of faith to make common good their voting criteria and to pursue faith, hope, and love on Election Day. As you go to the polls today, they hope you'll keep common good in mind. Earlier this year, Vote Common Good embarked on a 51 city bus tour, targeting seven potential swing states ahead of today's election. They're asking people of faith to vote common good and prevent the re election of Donald Trump. They're calling on people of all faiths to decry selfishness and to embrace love of others as they vote for that which is best for all people, not simply in the interest of themselves their religion, party, race, or nation. The common good is better for all. Today is the day. It's time for people of faith, hope, and love to stand up and be counted. For more information, visit votecommongood.com. They're at Mother Bethel AME in Philly today, so stop by and say hi. I heard rumors they might even be taking their bus to DC a little later today, so look for it there. And of course, follow them on Instagram at votecommongood for all the updates. Kamala Devi Harris was born in Oakland, California on October 20th, 1964. Her mother had moved to the U.S. from India at the age of 19 for postgraduate work and eventually became a renowned biologist and breast cancer researcher. Her father, who immigrated to the U.S. from British Jamaica at 22 for his own postgrad work, would go on to become a Stanford University Professor Emeritus of Economics. But when Kamala was born, both her parents were just 26 years old. Her mother had just completed her PhD, and her father was still a doctoral student at UC Berkeley. Harris's parents would both go on to be quite successful, but like most grad students and young people entering the workforce, they were not financially well off during Kamala's childhood. Her childhood home was a duplex in the predominantly black neighborhood in West Berkeley known as the Flatlands because there were a lot of flats there. As Harris memorably pointed out to her now running mate, then opponent during the Democratic primaries, Joe Biden, she was in the second class of students bused from West Berkeley into the newly desegregated Thousand Oaks Elementary School in Northern Berkeley in 1969. Kamala's parents eventually divorced, and she and her younger sister lived with their mom, but visited their dad in Palo Alto on the weekends. When she was 12, she moved with her mom and sister to Montreal, Quebec, where she graduated from Westmount High School in 1981. From there, it was on to Howard University, the renowned HBCU in Washington, D.C., for a degree in political science and economics. Then back to California for law school at UC Hastings, where she served as president of the Black Law Students Association and graduated in 1989. Most people know that Harris worked as a prosecutor and then a district attorney of San Francisco and eventually attorney general of California. And for a lot of people, this is the blight on her record, where she implemented a number of controversial practices that are seen as detrimental to black and Latino populations, especially harsh sentencing for nonviolent crimes and low-level marijuana convictions. As A.G. in 2011, Harris famously explained her difficult position of defending California's prison system by saying this. She said, I have a client, and I don't get to choose my client. In other words, this was her job. Still, in her role as A.G., she championed prison reform efforts, opposed anti-LGBTQ legislation, and made environmental protection a priority. So, the record is mixed. However, since becoming a senator in 2017, Senator Kamala Harris has been a consistent thorn in the side of President Trump and the GOP, beginning with her condemnation of Trump's executive order issued shortly after his inauguration that barred citizens from seven majority Muslim countries from entering the United States. Senator Harris's questioning of cabinet picks, committee witnesses, and Supreme Court nominees has garnered quite a bit of attention, her prosecutorial chops often on full display. She's even received praise from some unlikely places, like Senate Intelligence Committee colleague Marco Rubio and Trump apologist Lindsey Graham. And in an election against an old white blowhard, know-nothing president, and another white guy VP who is so lifeless, let's just remember that a fly can just hang out on his head for several minutes. Kamala Harris brings to the Biden campaign what it desperately needed, a reminder of Obama. Though she couldn't generate the kind of attention as a candidate that Barack Obama did in 2008, she shares a lot of the qualities that caused people to like him so much. Qualities that have nothing to do with her gender or the color of her skin or where she's from. She's smart, really smart. She's dead serious when the topic demands it, and she knows when and how to use levity and her quick wit to pivot a whole room in her direction. At 56, she's over two decades younger than her running mate, and her more youthful exuberance has been on full display during the campaign. If dancing on stage in the rain in sneakers is unpresidential, Kamala doesn't care, and neither do her supporters. In running for a role that has only ever been filled by boring, mostly mediocre white men, Kamala Harris is a breath of fresh air. But once again, like Hillary, she isn't the first. While Hillary Clinton was the first woman at the top of a major presidential party ticket, two other women have previously found themselves in Kamala Harris's position as the vice presidential nominee for a major party. Most of us remember the word salad that is Sarah Palin a test case for Trumpian populist politics, who probably did more to damage John McCain's reputation in 2008 than Donald Trump could ever dream of inflicting on the former POW and longtime senator. Palin, McCain's running mate, was the definition of a non-serious candidate. Uninformed and uncaring, but desperate for power. I'm not sure if Palin used the McCain campaign or if the campaign used her. I guess it was a bit of both. McCain's campaign hoped for a shot in the arm in their long shot bid, and so they chose a shock candidate who might be able to win some votes with the Tea Party wing of the Republican Party, as well as the mythical suburban housewife. For her part, Palin parlayed her vice presidential run into lucrative TV and book deals and speaking engagements before largely fading into the background as Trump began to rise. But there was another major party female VP candidate who came along 24 years prior to Palin. Her name was Geraldine Ferraro. And for some reason, I distinctly remember Geraldine Ferraro. I was only six years old when she ran as the vice presidential pick of Walter Mondale on the Democratic ticket. They were running in 1984 against the wildly popular Ronald Reagan. And they lost in a historic landslide, conceding 525 of the 538 electoral votes. But long before the votes were counted, before the candidates were chosen, before Reagan's popularity was cemented, Ferraro had been the one chosen out of a group of equally qualified women to be championed as a potential candidate. You see, in the early 80s, the thought of a female vice president was simply unheard of. At the time, only 24 of the 535 members of Congress were women, and there were no female governors serving that year. But a group of committed and politically powerful women were determined to get one of the major Democratic Party presidential candidates to consider adding a woman to their ticket. And in the fall of 83, that group, headed by Joanne Howes, the executive director of the Women's Vote Project, chose Ferraro, a young, charismatic congresswoman and former assistant district attorney in Queens, New York, to be the one. Ferraro, never one to mince words, had warned the women that the project was a long shot. There's no way, she said, that any presidential candidate is going to choose a woman as a running mate unless he's 15 points behind in the polls. Turns out she was right. As the primary campaign wore on and Reagan's popularity bloomed, challenger Walter Mondale found himself polling up to 19 points behind the incumbent. His campaign staff, as McCains would over two decades later, decided that if they were going to pull out all the stops, maybe a woman could deliver the votes they needed. That's not to say Ferraro wasn't qualified. She definitely was. It's just that in 1984, Washington, D.C., the old boys club was alive and well even more than it is today, if you can believe that. Ferraro's nomination was as much of a surprise as Palin's, though Ferraro was infinitely more qualified and ready for the role. Whether she realized it or not, Geraldine Ferraro's role in politics laid the groundwork for the women who would and will follow her. She defied the stereotypes and broke the mold by campaigning harder than anyone else in the election. And she was the better campaigner on the Democratic ticket that year. That even registered with my six-year-old brain, who made note of Ferraro in the midst of an uninspiring campaign by Mondale. Ferraro showed the political world that a woman could be tough, that she could dish it out and take it. She showed them that a woman can be smart, a revelation to some, And she showed them that a woman had all the stamina and strength required to campaign for the second highest office in the land. After their landslide defeat, Ferraro largely faded from public imagination, but she stayed active in politics, including her role as a fellow at Harvard Institute of Politics, where she taught a number of seminars, including one called So You Want to Be President. In 1993, President Bill Clinton appointed her first as a member of the U.S. delegation and later as the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Commission on Human Rights, a position she held until 1996. At that time, she joined CNN's Crossfire program as a co-host. Her career as a political commentator would continue and eventually take her to Fox News, where she was a contributor during the McCain-Palin campaign of 2008 where the unapologetic feminist applauded the selection of Palin and criticized sexist coverage of her candidacy. She speculated that the selection of Palin could conceivably deliver the presidency for McCain, but she also correctly predicted that any bump McCain received from the nomination would likely fade before the election. Ultimately, Ferraro announced her support of Barack Obama and his running mate Joe Biden in the 2008 race. Geraldine Ferraro died in 2011 from multiple myeloma, a form of cancer she had been diagnosed with 12 years earlier. She was 65 years old. From Ferraro's long-shot VP candidacy in 1984 to Lenora Fulani's historic achievement of being the first female presidential candidate on the ballot in all 50 states in 1988, to Sarah Palin's nomination in 2008, to Hillary Clinton's historic presidential run in 2016, to Kamala Harris's high-energy candidacy in 2020, the history of women being considered serious candidates in the U.S. presidential politics is embarrassingly short. To think that all of these women were candidates in my lifetime is just mind-boggling. To think that only one of them came anywhere close to actually taking office is shameful. Perhaps this time around, things will be different. Perhaps today, we are witnessing history. Perhaps. I'm Adam Mosley, and that's all I've got. The Ocean Podcast is produced and written by me, Adam Mosley, and recorded in Athens, Georgia. The theme music was composed by Irina Kakiani, and the opening voiceover is by Rachel West. This podcast is copyright 2020 by Adam Mosley. For reproduction, interviews, or bookings, email request at theoceanpodcast.com.